welcome to the Office 365 Developer Podcast, the only show focused on Office 365 development where Richard and I talk to the experts from all over the globe coding on the Office 365 Developer Platform. For more information on Office 365 development, please visit dev.office.com and follow us on the hashtag Office365Dev. Okay, and welcome to episode 50. Rich, we've made it to 50 episodes of this show. That just shows there must be enough content to talk about. You've made it to 50. I'm, I'm a newbie still, but uh, congratulations. It's uh, It's gone a, a long way in the last year. Yeah, it's um, it's something when I first got on, I, I kind of dabbled with podcasts, helping out uh, Rob Foster and Nick Swan and Brett Lonsdale back in the day. And I'd actually done some with the SP DevWiki stuff a long time ago too. I think I did like 12 shows of that from kind of talking to people when I was at conferences. But having this weekly rhythm, it kind of forces you to go and find new topics and find new people to get on the show. And there's no shortage of it, that's for sure. Yep. Yeah, we got uh, got some exciting ones coming up too. I'm excited about today. Yeah, no, this one's exciting. I, it's been hard to kind of push this one off uh, with kind of Eric's being a double up and kind of covering all the build coverage in detail and having something we can kind of deep dive into today is cool. But um, before we jump into the show, there's been some quite cool things happen this week. The um, the patterns and practices guys, so Vesa, Yuvenen, and his mob have had their June 2015 community call, and uh, they had some special guests on there. So they had uh, Stefan Bauer talk about some of the stuff he's been working on inside of the PNP stuff. And we also kind of had a general kind of introduction by Frank on some of the new site provisioning UX app that he that they've been building. It was something, it was like a self-service for end users, but we've essentially open sourced it. I think it's something that they've used with a few customers over here in America, and uh, we decided to share that source code. And it's it looks really nice. I know Frank's learned a ton of frameworks, bootstrap UIs in there for sure, to make it look nice and pretty and responsive. But um, it's really cool because it allows you to provision sites and site collections and all the code is using the core libraries that are submitted on GitHub as well. So it's kind of a really good testament to all the good work that's been going in there and having something that an IT guy could almost deploy with a few configuration steps in their tenant and be up and running, which is nice. Yeah, you know, they um, Vesa and his his motto of sharing is caring is definitely <laughs> um, you know kind of showing through with that one because that's one of those ones that um, uh, almost everyone that's moving in kind of our, our recommended direction for development is... Um, adopting, I think, in a lot of ways, the you know the automated provisioning approach, and so it's cool to see some really strong IP continuing to come out around that. Yeah, and if anyone heard that can opening, it's not a beer. It's only well, it's one o'clock here, so I guess I could have a beer at work. But um, I'm on the talking rain today. For anyone who's been on campus um, and has experienced our fridges of soda, talking rain will sp- prevent you from putting on 20 pounds in your first year at Microsoft because there's a free entity of Coke and Pepsi in the fridges there. What's your beverage of choice when you come up to campus? Well, I'm trying to get better. Uh, my wife is gets on me for drinking too many caffeinated drinks. So I'm trying to go to Talking Rain. Talking Rain, for those that aren't familiar, is basically <laughs> carbonated water. So obviously it's it's probably one of the better things that we have in there for you, but there's certainly uh, uh, lots of choices. Yeah, I, I drink it because it makes me feel like I'm drinking a real soda, but really it's just sparkling water with a bit of lime in it. Um, it's kind of like me being a drug addict and, and you know, taking the low-profile drugs rather than the high-profile drugs. <laughs> it's my drip off of being hardcore Coca-Cola, three cans a day. That's a very demented analogy. You might say instead, maybe it's one of the little vapor cigarettes. It's like... Oh, I like it. Yeah. Using kind of the fake cigarette, but you still get a little bit of the 
benefit. And you, and you still annoy everyone else around you with all the vapor smoke going everywhere, which they assume it doesn't annoy people, but it really does. <laughs> for anyone listening, smoking vapor, stop. It can't be good for you. And then the other one, uh, this actually came in this morning. So we're recording this on Monday. Uh, Chris O'Brien, who is, is probably my favorite Office 365 dev blogger. It's a big call to make, but he really is in terms of the way that he walks through the, the problem he's trying to solve and then the resolutions and also the journey of how he got there. Um, I think he does it the best out of any of the bloggers we have on the circuit in that sense. And um, he always picks the, the the big challenging kind of tough nuggets um, rather than kind of discrete kind of focused areas. And this one he's talking about the challenges of kind of having multiple clients and dev test and production environments and what some of the challenges are there around, you know, how you deploy things to different environments and to our different services, whether it's kind of the Yammer side of the house or whether it's using the, uh, you know, the various different products that we have. And so it's a really good piece of reading. A lot of it's just highlighting the, the challenges that we have. And um, I've already flicked this internally to our dev experiences team that we have internally within Rob Lethert's org. And, you know, they agreed that, yeah, he's spot on with some of these comments and there'll be some things that, Hopefully, we'll be able to disclose in our next wave of announcements that we'll do in the in the fall this year. That we'll, we're starting to starting to work out exactly what we're going to be able to talk about now already, which is pretty exciting to start planning that for the event where we're going to land all this stuff at the end of the year. This one's pretty huge. Just, I mean, it's not the most exciting topic to talk about. Um, I've, I recently spoke on on this topic, the AOM side of things at a recent conference, and it's not the most exciting to talk about. And it can be a little bit defensive just because maybe we don't have the best story around that. I know there's um, efforts going on, but it's a huge question a lot of people have. This might be a good one to get Chris on and, and maybe dig deeper in this and some of the, you know, lessons learned that he's gone through on, you know, how do you, how do you determine a tenancy and how does it uh, align with, you know, the traditional dev test prod type of scenarios? Yeah, he's actually next on my list. I've actually got to reach out to him and ask when he can get him on the show because um, I've seen him at a few conferences and we're just always too busy to meet in person at these conferences because he's speaking, I'm speaking. And then at social things, you don't want to get bogged down in work talk and want to just kind of have some downtime from talking about dev, but it never happens. And then at the end of the talk, you always wish you'd had the recorder on to record the discussion you had, but I guess it's one of those things. Um, and then yeah, last week on Wednesday, I was working from home. This is pretty funny because I thought it'd be quieter in the office. We're actually being, a lot of us being kicked out of building one and moving over to 37, which is a, a nice new building. And any of the MVPs that are listening, it's the building where all the MVP sessions happen for SharePoint with the big uh, atrium and the, the Starbucks in on the ground floor. So I figured I'd, I'd work from home because it'd be quieter in my, in my new gaff and um, sat in my office and I woke up at seven o'clock in the morning. I think the show was at nine and where I am in um, Totem Lake, it's beautiful trees everywhere, like hundred foot trees and all swaying in the wind. And my neighbors decided they wanted to chop down said 120 foot tree, which was on their front lawn. And just as I was about to go into the webinar, um, they were at the stage where they were throwing it through this huge machine that turned, you know, like eight foot trunks into itty little bits of wooden scrap. And um, boy, that machine was noisy. And so I had to kind of live in my basement games room downstairs um, to try and keep away from the noise. So it, it wasn't too bad. I could see my mic levels when I was silent. It was pretty quiet. But every now and again, you could hear the bit where they chuck the trunk 
straight through the machine. But anyway, uh, Unity Connect Online. You can get to it through itunity.com. Um, and then there's a big banner at the top, which is Unity Connect Online. They had three days of solid hour-long sessions with 90-minute keynotes, which, of which I did with um, Scott Hillier, where we talked about the future of development. There were some really good speakers, Ted Patterson, Andrew Connell, Corey Roth, um, Eric Riz, Asif Romani, Mark Rackley, like just massive amount of names there talking about development and Rob Bogues actually I can see his picture on there too and really good content so that's available if you register on their website um, you'll be able to get all of that stuff on demand if you missed it all live so I'd, I'd highly recommend going and checking out that content they also covered not just dev they covered IT pro and business user stuff so they had like Richard Harbridge and Reuven Gotts and Jen Mason and Dan Holm and all those guys um, talking about the IT, uh, sorry, the end user and IT pro stuff too. So um, some good content. I had a really good discussion with Cot and Scott and was quite candid on a few bits and pieces there too. So I, I'm really liking what IT Unity are doing, kind of bringing the community in online and, and kind of sharing that stuff too. And then one last bit, which was a surprise to me, and I'd be interested to see whether you had heard about this or not, Rich. I've been saying for a while that group assignment within an Azure Active Directory application would be coming. So right now, if you create an Office 365 API and you get an, an Azure AD client ID and you get a secret, in the Azure management portal, you're able to assign users that would be able to have access to that application, which would mean that the first time they used it, they wouldn't see the consent screen because essentially you would have consented on their behalf through the administration of Azure Active Directory. Um, what I didn't realize was, is if you have Azure Active Directory Premium, which is not what you get by default when you have Office 365 Azure Active Directory, you have to upgrade your Azure Active Directory that comes with Office 365 to a premium SKU, you can actually do that group assignment. So for instance, if I was creating a, a standalone web application that used the Candre API in Azure Active Directory, and you wanted to assign it to just the finance Active Directory group, you could do that group assignment, but you'd need Azure Active Directory Premium. Interesting. You didn't know that one either. Interestingly, I I have it in my tenant, but I also long time ago upgraded to Azure Active Directory Premium because I wanted to do some Intune things. So I guess I thought it was an automatic thing. So that's interesting. I didn't know that it wasn't there normally, but uh, good Good catch. And then the other one was disabling applications. So what if we want to block an application from ever being able to be consented? So say if Richard had an app in a standalone web application on the web called Richard's Really Cool App That Won't Do Any Danger.com and uh, one of your business users consented to it and didn't read the consent screen that says has full control of all SharePoint sites. And then when they hit the homepage of Richard's Cool application, it trashed all their site collections, you can actually use a PowerShell command called set-msol service principle um, that allows you to block based on the client IDs um, of said services that they won't be able to have access to those things. So this is fairly new to Azure Active Directory and eventually all this stuff will be through user interfaces. But for now, that would be the way that you would do it. You know what I did this week, Jeremy? Speaking of that. Go on, what did you do? I set up a new developer tenant for the first time in like two years. 
I've had the same one forever. I don't know if anyone else, any of our listeners have gone. You've managed to survive that long. I have, on just because I built so much. I mean, you should go see like my developer site collection. I've seen your Azure management portal. It looks like someone sneezed on that screen. Pretty much. I'm sure your house is a mess like that too, right? You just leave everything everywhere. Well, what I finally decided was is, is you know, I'm so, I, I enter in that tenant name, R, I used RZNA for the longest time, rzna.onmicrosoft.com. Typing that in over and over and over again, I finally said, I'm going to go find the smallest domain <laughs> I can find on GoDaddy, and I'm going to go and, and get put a verified domain to a new tenant. So now I don't have to do the onmicrosoft.com. I can just do, <sighs> I think it's rzdemo at, at com. That's probably a smart move. It's going to change my life. I really think it will. Yeah, that I think I might have to borrow that idea. So did you use the same tenant and just apply the domain or did you start from scratch? I decided to start from scratch. So I started from scratch and just did the verified domain. You know, I, I own thousands of domains. Every time I get some little harebrained idea, I go buy a domain for it. But, you know, domains now are 99 cents a year. There's no reason you can't just go get a domain and tie it to your Office 365 Tenant. It's really easy to do too. When I got my um, tenant, when I decided to flip my email over there, it, I couldn't believe how easy it was to go into Exchange and configure the the DX records in my DNS provider and and have it all up and running in no time. So if you're if you're GoDaddy, it does it all for you now. I did see that. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yep. So okay, so that's that's the new stuff. I wanted to just make sure you guys knew on that. And we mentioned it last week, but the scopes for SharePoint sites have the app only as well now, which was which was fairly new too. For, and for files on OneDrive for Business, which is cool. Um, and then lastly, I, we did miss it, even though it was in my notes. Stéphane Cordonia, who's in Paris, has actually started poking around the video REST APIs within Office 365, which live off, right now they live off tenant.sharepoint.com, WAC portals, WAC hub, WAC underscore API, because the video portal is essentially one of these SharePoint ready-to-go portals and it, it's actually running under a site collection called called Hub and off a managed path called Portals. Um, eventually, that'll all run on the unified endpoint, and which we'll talk about that in this show. But um, he's got a really good post there about querying video portals based on either across all of the channels within the video portal or targeting a particular channel using the GUID of the channel um, that you that you want to do and um, has some samples there and and showing some like JSON responses you get back to. So if you're doing anything with the video portal, Stefan's been posting a few bits about this and um, yeah, I just really like the fact the community is sharing as they're learning here and filling in some of the gaps or adding value into the documentation that we have available through dev.office.com. Have you played with the video portal, Rich? I, I did quite a bit um, years ago. Uh, you know, when I was in the Microsoft Technology Center, it seems like at least twice a year I'd have a customer come in that wanted basically YouTube for the enterprise. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, at the time, Microsoft had a really cool one we had built called Academy, and it was all uh, homegrown internally. And we had learned a lot from that to where we could kind of repeat it. Um, and, and the video portals really came from a lot of that work, a lot of the lessons learned from delivering you know, a video portal, it's not as easy as just putting a video out there. You want to do things like encode it into standard formats and, you know, accept almost any format. And, and so um, I did a lot of work with it back then and actually coming up with a solution. But now that we've kind of productized it, I've or, or I've combined it into an Office 365 offering, 
I've poked a little bit, but uh, certainly not to the extent that um, this blog does. So it's a good one. Yeah, I did the ready go ready to go portal thing. You know, like looking at the top ten scenarios of what people have done with our platforms, and it's primarily around SharePoint. It's been really cool, and I think the ones that we announced. Like the video portal was definitely based on the academy stuff that we have internally. The new portal collaboration stuff that we're shipping is based on Infopedia, which is another internal portal we have. And, and you know, it's, we, we knew that we're building them, but we know that other customers have built these things in the past. And what's been really cool is these engineers have been going out and talking to our customers and seeing what they build and what their requirements are and trying to fit them into the ready-to-go portals that we've shipped. So that, that's been really exciting to see see that team shipping those things. And also making them extendable too. So the fact that the video portal ship with APIs is really neat too. So um, that's the updates for the week. I wanted to get Rohit on the show. Rohit is from the Exchange team. Um, I've been working with him ever since I joined Microsoft because it was kind of bleeding right into the mail, calendar contacts APIs and um, all the great work the Exchange team have been doing around those scenarios. So welcome to the show, Rohit. Thanks, Jeremy. I'm really glad uh, you called me. Finally, yeah, like because um, I was talking to Venkat, who obviously you're you're in his team, and um, he was like, "No, you got to get Rohit on to talk about this stuff because he's been kind of the the, the go to on this." Um, so, how how long have you um, been working in Microsoft? In Microsoft, I think I've been here for now seven years. I'm a program manager right now in Exchange, but before Exchange, I was a dev lead in SQL Server. All oh, right. And uh, before Microsoft, I used to be a software engineer in an IBTB startup. Cool. So in SQL, what were you doing there? Is there any kind of major features we may have may have heard of as, as SQL devs? It was a um, V1 product called Data Market. It was an attempt to kind of create a marketplace for buying and selling data. The site still exists. I kind of been away from it for two years, so I don't know where is it now, but uh, it was a view and product built on Azure. The reason it wasn't SQL Server is because it was about data. That's cool. I think I've used some of that stuff. Is that you can kind of consume that from Excel and all those all that bits, right? Exactly. Yep. That is integration in Excel. So you can basically say, hey, I want to get external data, and then you you'll be shown all these sources from which you can pipe the data inside Excel. And in fact, uh, one of the interesting nuggets there is that uh, it was one of the first products to actually use uh, OData. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And so is that you kind of became like the the API guru in that sense around the endpoints and stuff? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was more of an end-to-end. We had like a full portal and uh, it was good to learn a lot of Azure because, you know, this was like around three, four years ago. So Azure was still growing and uh, learning all the technology. And that was my first cloud service in a way that I worked on. So it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I remember doing some, I don't even know why I was focused on that area. I think it was just demoing, kind of connecting to external data points, but the, the criminal records databases on there is actually- Exactly. That we use that for demo a lot. Really scary. Yeah. yeah. You like start looking at how many murders there are in a state and you're like, I'm glad I don't live in New York anymore. <laughs> One of the apps that I wrote to get a demo was that, you know, basically we import your Facebook friends list and then we join it with this criminal stats list and say that, <laughs> hey, which of your friend is likely to die in the next year? <laughs> We should we should do that demo again, but link it in with the Office 365 API somehow. Yep. It sounds like a mail add-in when you get an email from someone, <laughs> yeah. expand it. Is this sender likely to like perform a crime on me at some point in the future? You, you can like change the priority of responding to the email based on the likelihood of them being killed in their local neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, that was really cool scenarios that you can come up with that. To be a dark add-in. <laughs> I'm sure we get some laughs on stage for that. That'd be that'd be for sure. Yep. And so you joined the exchange team. You've been there for that long. 
uh, for years now. What have you been working on? Within Exchange, my primary role is to you know, help create a vibrant ecosystem around Office 65, of course, focused on exchange uh, workloads. But more specifically, I'd say in the last year or two, I've been um, focused extensively on restifying our Outlook APIs. We're super excited that we previewed and GA'd these APIs like mail calendar contacts last year. And uh, since then, you know, We've really kicked it into high gear by adding a whole new bunch of features to them. What, what was the main driver, you say, about focusing on REST? What, what, was, what were you guys seeing in Exchange when you were reaching out to the ISVs? Well, that's a good question. You know, I mean, uh, Exchange traditionally as a big enterprise play has uh, had a very good set of APIs, which uh, were probably created maybe seven or eight years ago. And these are the EWS SOAP APIs. So they are widely popular. They are very feature rich. But one of the challenges that we were hearing from a lot of uh, uh, new age developers who wanted to adopt and uh, interact with Exchange was that the SOAP APIs traditionally had a longer learning curve. So that was one major thing. Um, and the second thing was that the permission model was also not easy because there was no OAuth support and granular access. So a couple of those main points were something that we wanted to address. Um, and in the consumer space, we also wanted to kind of address the mobile market because if you wrote, uh, any of you who have written AWS API would know that there is no traditional, um, what I would say is like a serialized or deserializer for SOAP APIs on say Android platform, which means you have to basically go get something off the shelf, which is not reliable or write your own proxy. So what we thought is like, you know, we, we, we basically jump ahead, remove all those uh, hindrances and go with the JSON approach. So that's what resulted in kind of coming up with the REST APIs. And, and you mentioned, you know, this notion of Office 365 with Exchange Online and uh, the consumer space with Outlook.com. Like under the covers from an engineering perspective, when you're releasing these APIs, your intent was it's the same for both, right? Exactly. I think with the convergence of uh, the consumer and the enterprise on the same stack, developers will get the advantage of just using the same programming model to access both enterprise and consumer accounts. So anybody whose account is migrated will be able to use the same APIs to access both, say, Rohit at Microsoft.com or Rohit at Hotmail.com. Yeah, that's cool. And I think from a development perspective, maybe the people listening are probably laser focused on the enterprise, but you'll you'll see the momentum as we push Microsoft as a royal way here towards this kind of con commercial consumer kind of blurring the lines a little bit, both with Windows 10 and with the mobile um, apps that we release on all the different platforms, that, that that world will start to merge. And over time, and it's not going to happen overnight, but people will kind of expect your applications to provide a view of both worlds. It's something that, you know, I'm still getting comfortable with internally, but it really does help to have almost like this convergence of one calendar. You know, right now I have my Microsoft.com calendar and I have a consumer calendar, uh, which is actually another exchange account, which is my personal life. But having that overlaid in Outlook is no harm of useful when you're trying to schedule things with people. And I think the APIs just make that a lot easier if you're building a mobile device app or a a standalone application. So I think that having the APIs the same for both, you know, is is key for kind of making that easy for developers moving forward, that's for sure. I couldn't agree more, yeah. I think, you know, as you said, that scenario specifically where you have multiple calendars, like even within Exchange, you can have four calendars. You know, a lot of uh, power users have many calendars that they keep for separate accounts or whatever. And one of the app's uh, main features is to actually be able to show this combined view. 
And if you have just one API across various consumer enterprise, then that just becomes as much easier. And so you mentioned, you know, the mail calendar uh, contacts. They were the key ones that we we shipped in preview March of last year, so 2014. And obviously, we made those generally available in, in October at the uh, TechEd Europe event. Yep. But um, we had some other announcements in uh, build uh, around those APIs. What, what what things have you been working on re- more recently that were announced in that in that kind of period? So for specifically for the mail calendar contacts, some of the new announcements were around uh, you know notifications was a big one, right? Like uh, we've been asked repeatedly by a lot of customers that hey, we want notifications on top of mail calendar contacts so that if you're writing an app and you want to be notified when somebody sends you a new email or deletes an email, then you can use those. The other big one I would say was around search. So we have like full text search support now. So you can use the dollar search uh, query parameter and uh, basically provide free text there. And it will search through your uh, messages and say that, hey, it basically chooses a bunch of properties, like a huge number of properties from the mail schema and does a search on that. And it's pretty fast. So that was a big one. Batching, course, there are some other big ones. I was just going to say that the, the first one, the notifications one, I don't, I'm not sure all our listeners really comprehend the the power there. That's one of the things that we have an internal initiative. It's a lot of people call it one API at Microsoft. It's kind of what led us to things like the unified API. But the idea is to get some consistency and, and some standards around what we're doing with our APIs. And one of the things that we want to do universally is that concept of notifications or web hooks where I can hook in and be able to get notified on it. And and so you guys, um, from a beta perspective, are, are really the first of the Office 365 suite products to to really offer that that's true and i think you know as i think you uh, made the right uh, separation that you know that's like notifications is a very generic term so the implementation is specifically webhooks where you specify a callback url and then you get notified there it's a very generic very a common pattern that is used today in the industry for restif- for restified services. Yeah, and it's testament to you guys, and we do mention this show a lot, but it's just worth re- reiterating that you know the user voice site that's available to you know linked from dev.office.com and through Stack Overflow, the Exchange team are very active, and through the Yammer Office 365 technical network, you guys listen and take on that feedback, and and, and obviously you have very tight knits into the various ISVs that are implementing too, and so this stuff is all coming from the field, asking for, for these things, and I, I do joke, but it, it does seem that Exchange are always the ones that are releasing the the newer stuff first, and then our other products in the platform are, <laughs> or the product teams are catching up. So you guys are the ones to go and ask for the newer stuff first and get it implemented. And then we go and point at the other teams and go, well, but the mail kind of contacts has webhooks, so why don't you guys have it? Yeah. No, actually, that's a good point. Again, I think um, I've not been in Exchange for too long, but at least in my last two years, I've seen the shift also to be very focused on what the customer really wants. And then we work with uh, a lot of first parties, of course, but then our focus has been that we want to keep the first and third parties to be the same. And in that sense, we work with a lot of ISVs during our development process so that we get feedback directly from them and then we can incorporate that in a product firsthand. And as you said, you know, on the Stack Overflow forums or the user voice forums, we like internally our bosses and my managers, manager are all 
so anal about making sure that none of the answers remain, or none of the questions remain unanswered for more than a day. You know, so we, we really uh, make sure that uh, the community has all the answers they need, and we take that input from all the questions that we get into our planning cycle to ensure that we prioritize the features that we are building next in the right way. Yeah, and, and you guys really, you know, you, you prove that in its testament, so a big thanks to you and your team for that. Now, in terms of the API endpoint, when we ship these things in beta or beta, depending on where you are in the world, we had the the endpoint, which was very specific to Exchange. So it was kind of outlook.office365.com. But more recently at Build, we announced our Office 365 Unified API. Um, do you want to just quickly explain your take on, on what that is and, and, and why we've gone that path? So before we had the Unified API, uh, we had the REST service endpoints for various services. For example, Exchange, as you said, were outlook.office365.com. Uh, Azure Active Directory has the graph.windows.net. And SharePoint has its own. And one good thing we did, even before we had the unified API, was that we made sure that the programming model across all these three was same. So a developer could uh, understand how the programming model will be if he used Exchange, which is you know data v3 or v4, and he could apply the same principles in the different services. But it was still a little bit of a cumbersome task to then figure out what these endpoints were. In some cases, the endpoints are static, like you know Exchange will not change. It'll be a big deal if we change that endpoint. But for SharePoint, it was more dynamic because they had the tenant name in the URL in the beginning. So to avoid that problem, uh, you know, one of the things we said is that, hey, we will have a discovery service which will help help you find what these endpoints are. So you ask the discovery service, hey, I want to access Exchange endpoint, and it'll give you a URL or SharePoint or AAD. But then we were like, you know, we are basically giving a solution to a problem which should not even exist. So that's that was the attempt to uh, come up with the unified API. And also long term, uh, as number of service workloads increase, you know, right now we have four or five teams which are collaborating, but as we increase the number of teams, that will take part in the unified API, it just becomes very clear that uh, single endpoint is the way to go. I'll, I'll point out kind of one, my, from my perspective, one of the areas that I think highlights it the best is, and it also highlights one of the things you guys just actually from the Exchange API team released is every app that I've built since since the build conference has included user photo. So um, you guys developed you know, the, the new user photo endpoint for Exchange where I can go get high-res pictures. I think every app can benefit from displaying the current user's photo. Uh, however, I might be building an application that's primarily SharePoint focused, or maybe maybe it's just looking up directory information, but I want to get that high-res photo, and I don't have to go get new tokens or switch the you know the the base API URI that I'm I'm using for it and so I'm I'm seeing that as a benefit in like every app I'm building these days no, that's a very good example you know I think as you said it becomes uh, something that the developer doesn't have to worry about as to where is this data coming from because those are the themes that probably the developer doesn't care about right like hey is this data coming from exchange is this data coming from AAD is this data coming from OneDrive why do I care where where Microsoft decided to store the photo. I just want a user's photo. Yeah, and it just very much shows the power of the, the whole Office platform and not having to worry too much about you know what product it's coming from. And I think the Office graph is one example of kind of that. It doesn't really matter whether it's a file in OneDrive for Business or an email inside of um, Exchange or 
um, you know, a conversation that's happening in Yammer. Like the Office Graph just brings all that up to the to the surface that you can use with trending around and and working with. And I will just mention that uh, I was speaking to the engineers, and there's a Yammer conversation on the Office 365 technical network. It is being rolled out currently to production. So we did announce that at Build, having the the work whack working with and whack trending around, and it's something that's currently being pushed out. It's not in all production tenants. I checked two of mine this morning, and and they're still not there but it is something that the team are actively pushing out right now um, so you can kind of go to um, graph.microsoft.com whack beta whack me whack trending around or whack uh, working with and you would get a json response there of that office graph content so you should go and check that the easiest way to check that um, is go to graph explorer 2 dot azure websites.net and click on the sign in in the top right and you'll be able to just immediately put that rest in there and it hands all the tokens and shows your response in a in a nice clean way or you can go to the api explorer um, from dev.office.com and go to resource uh, sorry documentation and the api api explorer is one of the options in that documentation drop down yeah they're kind of cool thing there too that that i'm seeing more and more as i get more advanced with that unified endpoint is how easy we make it for you to traverse the unified endpoint. And what I mean by that is um, I might, so here's a really odd example. I might go to a file that's in SharePoint using the unified API, look at the user who modified it. So look at modified by user. And then I might want to go look at, well, this is kind of a weird example because they wouldn't have the permissions. But, but imagine from there I could traverse to things like Exchange and say, look at mail for that user. So anywhere where I end up with like a, an actor or a user, I can start traversing to other services, which I think is, is really cool and powerful about that. And again, like, like Rohit said, is, is not so much worrying about where things are coming from. Yeah, and I think that, that, that aspect is going to grow as we add more traverse hooks in there. Especially the, you know, there's a file, who modified it, then look at their trending around would be pretty cool. And I think that's quite a nice scenario there. Of, well, what else are they working on and be able to surface that within your, your standalone web application or your mobile app as well. And then I guess the segue there is that the Office Graph is one example of that. But then this new notion of the Office 365 groups um, is also something that you could, you know, um, traverse on as well. So do you want to just quickly explain, Rahit, around what the Office 365 groups is first before we talk about the API? Yeah, so one of the other announcements that we did in Build was uh, the availability of Office 365 groups. The Office 365 group itself were introduced in around December of last year. Users of Office 365 today can go and create and play with these groups using Outlook Web Access, but there were no APIs. So, you know, in a very short period of time, we have basically introduced the APIs so that developers can have programmatic access to them. What an Office 365 group itself is, well, in a nutshell, Groups help bring people, information, and apps together to enable better communication and collaboration. Now, we are already familiar with this collaborative concept in the consumer world, right? Like we all use Facebook, WhatsApp, and many other collaboration products. But basically, this change is also now coming to the enterprise, um, where you know, in enterprises, previously you've noticed that people have focused a lot on individual productivity. But today's world, you know, the 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 teams in companies actually get things done. And that's why the uh, value is shifting to the collective. 
And uh, we need to basically have tools that can enable this collective experience to be more productive. And that's where Office 65 groups come in. I would say the main benefits are that they are self-service, right? So you don't have to go through an admin and say, hey, I want a group and I want you to create one, put these members, it's all self-service. You can go create how many of the groups you want, add members to it and start using them. They are public by default. That's the main principle, which is that uh, if you create a group, it will be public wherein any members or non-members will be able to look at the content and collaborate. Uh, if you want to create a private group, you can, like, just a click, simple single click and you say, hey, I want it as a private group, in which case only members will be able to look at the content. The other major advantage of Office 65 group is context and history. If you know what a traditional DL does is that you add members to the DL, which is a distribution list. And uh, let's say that you have a distribution list around a project and uh, you have a new member join this project three months later. Now, basically, they will have to uh, know the whole context of what's been discussed. So they'll ask the same questions over and over again. And people will be like, hey, I'll send you a compile of what this was before. So this takes away all that because the whole history is available. The person can go back, browse, and see what content was there, what questions were asked. I see this in like you know internal Microsoft forums all the time. right? There is an investment forum, dad's alias, this and that. And people keep asking the same questions again and again. Hey, do you have a recommendation for a good you know, doctor or, or uh, advisor? And so that that's one major advantage. And they're simple to manage, right? So there's not a lot of complexity in how groups have been designed. So folks who are using either the UI or the API will find it to be very easy to manage. Yeah, and it kind of ties in a few different elements, right? So you've got the conversations that are, you know, essentially being stored in exchange. You have the ability to have files and a OneNote notebook associated with the group. And, you know, eventually, as we talked about, um, Mark, well, Mark Cashman and, and Christoph talked about um, this notion of having a, a tasks associated with a group. And, and there'll be other extensibility points where you'll be able to extend your own kind of object onto that group as well. Yeah. So today, like on Office 65 group, you can think of it as just a, a thin layer that ties a lot of different workloads together, right? So you have uh, conversations which which allow you to have communication with the group members. And then it has files where you can share all the files with group members. You can have a calendar, which is one shared calendar. Uh, and in the future, as you were just mentioning, there will be more and more things like tasks and Skype and uh, dynamic CRM. All these different applications will continue to enhance an Office 65 group. And what we focus on today is the APIs basically will then be able to access all these different workloads through a single endpoint and build amazing apps on top of that. Yeah, and and so have you? We we're working with ISVs already or internally. Have you seen anything that people are already kind of? looking at scenario-wise to kind of map that into their own applications? I mean, yes, uh, there are a few that I can talk about. Like, mainly, I would say, uh, if you want to think about the scenarios, primarily, I would say the apps that are using Office 65 groups use it as a platform to build their specific business solutions. For example, a project management app can use the capability of the group to create one group per project and then enable conversations around topics, a shared calendar for the project, and you know, share files around it. Um, you can use it for a basis of forum-style discussion, right? So you can have a uh, just use the conversation piece heavily of a group. That's another thing, right? You don't have to use all the workloads to really use groups. You might be a heavy user of just the calendar or OneNote or just the files 
or many other things together. Uh, sales teams could use it for discussion around customers' leads. How are you want to model it? Like, you know, the dynamic CRM team, for example, internally is starting to use groups heavily. There are many other teams in Microsoft that are already starting to use this as a platform. So this is a major investment across the board in our platform to then go after other products within our own world, but also externally too. Absolutely. Yep. This is one of those cool areas where... Um, you can allow people to kind of still collaborate the way that they're maybe familiar with. One of the, I, I always joke around just airing some dirty laundry at Microsoft is I would venture to say we have more distribution lists than we have people. <laughs> there, I mean, there's there's a, this huge amount, but some people just really like working that way. And, and the great thing around like leveraging the group is uh, any sort of like communications that comes in on that group's email get threaded. Um, and so like APIs can take advantage of that side of things. And then, you know, a user can just keep using a group the way they, they might want to. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like I remember I was, uh, in the Active Directory team when I first joined Microsoft, one of the first products I made was this Forefront Identity Manager, which was actually to just you know help you manage your distribution lists and stuff. And at that time, this is many years ago, so this data is very stale. But you know, there were like five groups per employee, <laughs> so it was like five x. And then. What we have seen is like even in the consumer side, if you look at the studies, right? Like I use WhatsApp a lot, and I have probably fifty groups that I'm a member of, and people create these groups in on a fly. You know, some of them are heavily used, some of them are just used for a day or two. But that's the whole notion is that you know I want to have a conversation around some concept. You know, it could be people, it could be an, a subject, it could be a function, it could be a trip that we are making. You want to have that. Quickly assemble a group of people, chat about it, and with Office to Buy Group, you have not only a sharing experience where it's just chat, but it's also around files and calendars. So it becomes a much more enriching experience. And then, yeah, you, you know, you're done with it, you discard it, you move on. And so, you know, people can play with this today. I, you know, I'm just logged into my tenant now, graphexplorer2.azurewebsites.net, and uh, you know, I've put in, the, you know, it automatically puts in for me graph.microsoft.com slash beta slash then my tenant name dot on microsoft.com and then slash and rather than putting users in you can just put groups in that next node and then in the graph explorer what it's doing is is showing you the json responses and you get the unique odata id for each individual group and i can put that after the slash groups slash and and then the nice part is you know to what rich was saying earlier on i can do um, slash files there. What other kind of endpoints have I got once I've got the the group object in that in that um, unified API endpoint? I would say that four main parts, right? So the first is group management, wherein you want to go and be able to create a group. So you go to the slash groups endpoint and do HTTP post. You provide the uh, payload required to create a group, and then you create a Office uh, Express group there. The next thing you would want to do is you would want to add members. So once you have the created group, then you can basically call add members and then just give the list of users that you want to have as members. You could then do a few more things like you know make a group favorite. So you could say add favorite or remove favorite. You can subscribe for email, which basically means that if you uh, toggle that flag, then um, any conversations that come into that group will also be sent as an email 
to your inbox. You also have the capability as an app developer to reset unseen count. Uh, this is a count that is uh, basically a rolling number that keeps incrementing when you're offline. So, you know, in how in Facebook, if you log into the Facebook, there'll be a notifications page and there'll be a number assigned next to it, right? It'll say like 55. And once you click it, it shows you all the activity that happened since you last logged in. So this is the same concept. So reset unseen count allows an app to basically reset that number. And it's a global setting, right? So if you set that number to zero from your app, even if a person logs into OA, they will see that number reset because the idea is that you've seen this, these messages. It doesn't matter from which client you saw them from. So that's primarily group management, right? You create the group, manage the group, you add members, you favorite, unfavorite, subscribe, reset. The next is content. So the content, we have three main things. We have conversations, we have calendar, and we have files. So conversations are uh, topics of discussion that members engage in. By default, the group conversations are addressed to the group, but you can also add other people, external people, and any email address. So I can add jeremy at gmail.com to the to list and uh, the messages will go to them. Conversations contain threads uh, and threads contain posts. So it's like a tree view in which a conversation is uh, is a collection based on the topic. So if you have started a topic, say, uh, you know, let's discuss about weather today, then you can have multiple threads in that, and each thread will have a bunch of messages or posts in it. So you can define, you can decide as an app developer uh, what kind of a threaded view you want to show. And then once you, uh, again, with conversations, you can uh, you know create new conversations, read existing conversations. That actually brings me to another point, is that for permissioning, there are only two simple permissions for groups. One is group.read, and then there's groups.readwrite. Um, so, you know, once you have groups.read, then you can see all of group's content. And if you have read-write, then you can interact with the group's content. And, that, and that's going to do it. If you call that API, it's on behalf of whoever's authenticated into your mobile app or your web application, right? Yes. So it's the same model that we apply for mail or for files or any other thing. So you are logged in as yourself. So I, as Rohit... I'm a member of many groups. And so if I, as Rohit, log in and say, hey, go to you know, Jeremy's group, of which I'm a member of, then I can just say uh, group slash Jeremy group at Microsoft.com slash conversations. Are we, are we planning to have app only across this API endpoint? Or is that something in the future we're looking for? I would think that uh, we would probably like to bring that to groups also, just like we are yeah. going to for other things. Because it just makes sense, like like a background. Yeah, I can see this whole, you know, like a, a service that wakes up and looks at messages and maybe does some automatic stuff with a bot almost that kind of replies to threads or exactly that would be pretty cool to do that yep this question has already been asked and like google this you know like search this conversation for asking the same question and maybe have like a point system where it deducts from their stupidity or adds to their stupidity points for asking the same question <laughs> yes it's already been asked in the group that those are the kind of apps that you know can actually make uh, like do some more mining of existing group data and probably su suggest some intelligent um, applications on top of that uh, so again, the next one is um, Calendar. Uh, it's very powerful, right? Like uh, a lot of different applications are going to use Calendar extensively. Calendar is one of the most popular APIs, even in the me space, not in the group space. Uh, and uh, you know, many companies use a group to manage their personal business calendar. So they can say that, hey, we have appointment for a hair salon can be using group Calendar. Calendar have all the 
APIs that you can think of. You know, you can create events, update events, delete events, add details to the data and all that. And you can even attach files and bits and pieces to the events too, right? Absolutely, yeah. You can atta- you can have attachments. I was quite, quite surprised how thorough that API is for its first preview ship. I mean, it is on the beta endpoint. One thing to note is it's not available on the standalone outlook.office365.com endpoint. It's only available through graph.microsoft.com. So that's just one thing to bear in mind. It would make you flip over to the the uh, unified endpoint, which is still in preview. Um, we haven't kind of made a note of when we're going to actually gen- make that generally available. But um, you know, we're still getting feedback from various different people on that, and so we we want to keep it in preview just in case we do need to make a any changes to the shape of the API. But I think we learned a lot of lessons through the preview of the initial endpoints. Um, so we've not. You know, we've learned those lessons and I don't suspect there'll be too many major changes before we GA this unified endpoint for sure. Yeah, I think the idea is that uh, unified API is basically a federated API. So it does call the service endpoints. So you can access the groups from Exchange endpoint, like Outlook endpoint. But our recommendation is that access it from the graph endpoint and the documentation and everything will point to that. And the reason is because of a few more things, right? For example, one of the one of the things that we are working on right now, which is not available immediately, is instant on, which means that if you create a group from the graph API, uh, the group is not getting provisioned immediately, like you know, instantly in Exchange and SharePoint everywhere. It takes a few minutes for it to happen. So one of the uh, work items which is currently being worked on is to enable that. So as soon as you create a group, it'll instantly available so you can start interacting with. So if you are a developer, right, you when you go to the graph and do this, all this federation and the syncing, all this happens behind the scenes without you worrying about it. So you don't have to go and create it in SharePoint and then worry whether this group is now available in Exchange or can ADC it and all that. So that's another reason for actually uh, enabling it on, mainly only through the graph endpoint. Yeah, and I think that the groups hasn't taken off as as much as I, th- I guess the engineering teams would have hoped, primarily because it was a web-only interface. Um, I've been using the Office 2016 preview now for quite a while, which is publicly available if you haven't already downloaded the preview. And the groups interface is now pow- part of Outlook. And I find myself using my groups more and more because I can pin the individual groups as favorites next to the other folders I use most commonly. And if you've read my blog post before on kind of Inbox Zero, I have a bunch of folders that I have in my favorites. And I'm finding that I'm using those groups uh, a lot more now because they are inside my Outlook client. And I know we have mobile apps coming too, which I think will increase that even more. So it's something as an enterprise dev that's working with a company that's using Office 365 or an ISV that there's some really good scenarios that will come up around this this group's um, notion within Office 365 for sure. Okay, well, we're coming up to um, the hour here. So just to wrap up, Rich, um, we got no new reviews on iTunes, so there'll be no swag ship this week. There was zero tweets on hash Office 365 dev space hash swag. So there'll be no swag going out to any of our Twitter guys either. Did you get anything cool or notice anything you think is worth rewarding someone in the community for swag-wise? No, but I picked up some awesome swag. So I have... What did you get? I have a... um, And these are like sold out um, everywhere, like even in our company stores right now. It's a Surface Edition Arc Mouse. It's a like a seventy-five dollar mouse. Oh, I have seen that. It yes. it is life changing. It's an arc mouse, but it doesn't need the dongle. And I like went into one of our our stores in Las Colinas here in in 
Texas, and they had just gotten a shipment in, and they're sold out everywhere else. So I went and got like a, a few of those. So I have some Ooh. great things to send out. We just need to see some uh, some love. We, ne- we we need some iTunes love, man. That's what we need. That's right. And um, yeah, we need some people to send us their addresses based on the people we shouted out last week too, so yep. they can get that swag. Um, one last thing, and I'm t- I think in this should be some really cool swag. The big games conference is is on this week. I'm not that much of a gamer. I buy games and they're still sealed in packs um, sitting on my uh, TV. Uh, I think the last game I've actually played for more than an hour was Titanfall. Um, But they've just released an Xbox Elite wireless controller, um, which has programmable buttons on all of the buttons, as well as the thumbsticks being new and having a D-pad that's barely a D-pad anymore. And there seems to be a lot of excitement and screaming going on in the community. Is it Kotaku? Is that how you pronounce it? The big gaming site? So if there's any big Xbox gamers out there, I'm sure you've already heard of this. But um, it's pretty amazing how excited people get around new paddles that allow you to do intricate maneuvers without having to take your thumb off a thumbstick. You just call it a paddle? A paddle, apparently. Paddle's like what you get in trouble with at school and the principal like... <laughs> <laughs> or, or whack-a-mole. This is like one of your weird like UK references. I'm, I'm no, just no, 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 no. I'm reading directly for Kotaku, Kotaku.com. Okay. It, it's a thing apparently in the gaming world. All right. Go figure. We don't have time for that. We're coding all the time. That's right. Well, look, right here. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I think uh, you've added a ton of value around this notion of groups and what's there and what's coming and kind of revisiting the unified endpoint stuff we've talked about before. So I appreciate you being on the show and we'll certainly get you on the show kind of nearer the, the full release so we can talk a bit more about some of the other stuff that you would have released in that time frame too. Yeah, and there's a bunch of stuff that we keep releasing even for the Mail Canada Contacts API. So yeah, definitely just ping me, let me know, and I'll be more than happy to come and share. Excellent. Thanks very much, mate. And um, have a good week and thanks for jumping on the show, Rich. What You're off ski, right? You're going to London tomorrow. Yep, going to London. Uh, big uh, DX Recode conference that's going on in London. It's going to be myself and a bunch of smarter MVPs. And yeah, there's some big names too, right? Yeah, the lot, lots of folks going to be there. Um, Spence, Harbor, got Waldeck, got a bunch of people. So come out and check it out if you're in the area. Yeah, I mean, Waldex, we pretty much mention him every week about his blog post he's been doing around the office graph. And I did notice, though, that he's now a Sitecore trained specialist and he's been blogging about Sitecore too. So I'm interested to see how much he dives into web concept management now on Sitecore, as well as all the other stuff he's doing on Office Graph and bringing those two together, actually. Might set him that as a challenge. Well, enjoy your time in London. I will be sending you a shopping list of uh, sweets or candy that you need to buy me over there. I've depleted my Yorkie bars and my Lion bars. Um, So I'll have to give you some instructions on where you can get those and bring those back for me in Redmond. I already brought you Tim Tams once, so, you know, you're... Yeah, they, they're gone too. They don't last very long in the office, the Tim Tams. <laughs> awesome. Cool. I enjoy, enjoy your flight, and um, I hope everyone enjoyed the show. Please engage with us on Twitter, on our Yammer, Office 365 Technical Network, and also in the uh, Slack group that we created. We've had a fair few people join, but they're all very silent, and we've tried to drum up some conversation there. It's pretty fun just to have that going on in real time in the background, um, and obviously in more than 140 characters. So um, jump on that Slack group. You can see about that on um, jeremythake.com. I've blogged about that recently, and um, we'll speak to you next week. Thanks for listening, guys and girls. Make sure you check out dev.office.com for all of our other podcasts and all of our amazing resources. 
You can also check here for more information on our developer program where you can get a one year three developer tenant to stop building against the Office 365 platform. We're always here to chat with you on the Office 365 technical network on aka.ms slash office365devpodcastyam or you can follow us on Office Dev on both Twitter and Facebook. So until next week, guys, get coding.